being able to show black and brown kids having the answers or figuring out the answers and being the smart ones in the room, I think it's just so powerful. And I think that had I had that kind of representation in media growing up, I wouldn't have doubted that I could get here. Hello, world, and welcome to Her Royal Science. Thank you so much for joining us for our very first episode of Season 3. Today, we'll be chatting with Dr. Theanne Griffith, an assistant professor in the Department of Physiology and Membrane Biology at the University of California, Davis. She previously completed her Bachelor of Arts in Neuroscience and Spanish at Smith College, followed by her PhD in Neuroscience at Northwestern University. I am over the moon to chat with Dr. Griffith today about her work, which includes her ongoing research on the neurobiology of thermosensation and her spectacular chapter book series, The Magnificent Makers. Be sure to pick up the latest installment in the series, The Great Germ Hunt, released just earlier this month, and mark your calendars for February 21st, 2022, when Race Through Space becomes available. But let's start from the very beginning. Dr. Griffith, what's your story? Well, I'm originally from Alexandria, Virginia, um, and I've really bounced around a lot uh, since then. I've lived in Massachusetts, where I went to Smith College, Chicago. I even did a little bit of a stint in South America for a while in Chile. So I've kind of very much hopped all over the place. But one thing that has been consistent in my story, not my geographic location, (laughs) but is my love for science. Science and my love for storytelling. So I've always very much been a science kid, been very curious as to how the world around me works. Um, you know, my dad uh, lived in rural Pennsylvania, so when I would visit him during the summers, I would spend a lot of time outdoors and looking at tadpoles and wondering about them and why they, you know, t- went from fish to frogs in my, you know, child mind. <laughs> but I also was very much a reader and a writer and immersed myself in stories. Um, I'm an only child. So I spent a lot of time kind of in my own head and telling myself, um, you know, different stories and whatnot. And I think for a long time, those two passions ran kind of parallel but separate in my life, Mm -hmm. right? So for the most part, my career trajectory, I focused on science. I was first introduced to the field of neuroscience as a junior um, in high school. I took an AP biology course and you know, we did a three-week unit on neuroscience, and my mind was just kind of blown. (laughs) I learned about the sodium-potassium pump and action potentials and how neurons communicate with each other, and I was just like, whoa, this is hard but super cool. And so I chose Smith College to do my undergraduate work because they had a very dedicated neuroscience program and a lot of research opportunities, and I was fortunate enough to be able to do research all four years while I was there. But I always I always very much had that that kind of desire to write and that creative storytelling side in me. And as I moved on in my scientific career in grad school, I kind of thought, you know, oh, maybe I can find time to pursue this. And I kind of did a little bit of work towards that. But as all the grad students who are listening to this know, <laughs> grad school <laughs> is challenging in, in and of itself. <laughs> it's just a very difficult and transformative time, even when you have the most supportive of mental 
mentors and the most supportive of environment, which I found myself, you know, in that situation. I still couldn't quite, you know, didn't have the bandwidth <laughs> to pursue it. But then when I went to go pursue my postdoc at Columbia University with Dr. Ellen Lumpkin, I had my first daughter and I was reading to her, you know, a lot of these children's books and picture books. And I thought, you know what, Deanne, you, you can do this too. Like you've always wanted to do this. I've always specifically wanted to write for children too. I think children's imagination is just the most glorious thing ever. And, you know, creative writing that taps into that is just right up my alley. <laughs> it's really what I wanted to do. Um, and I wanted to combine it finally with science, you know, I wanted to write a fiction series, so not necessarily a non-fiction series, but a fiction series that was very much science-based and STEM-themed. And so, you know, I kind of was giving my hand at it. I did a lot of due diligence and research on my end to figure out how to break into the publishing industry. And if I told you all of those details, we'd be here for like three hours <laughs> to make a long story short. Um I, I, you know, made a, a website. I changed my Twitter bio to say that I was a children's book writer because I was told that if you write, then you are a writer. And Lord knows I was writing a lot. So I considered myself a writer, albeit not published. And I participated in some various Twitter contests. And by doing so, I caught the eye of an editor at Random House. And she cold emailed me and asked me if I wanted to give my hand at writing a science-themed chapter book series um, for kids. And that she was really interested in having a scientist do that. And although she didn't say this, I have a feeling that she wanted to have a diverse perspective on science, not mm. just, you know, what we've already seen <laughs> for the past <laughs> however many years, you know. Um, and so again, to make another pretty long story short, after some back and forth, the Magnificent Makers were born. And here I am, almost two years later now, uh, two and a half, actually two and a half years later from that initial cold email. How long have you been a published author then? Because I mean, I feel like I've known about you as long as I've been on Twitter. <laughs> so the books were published in May to 2020. The books one and two, and then book three came out in September 2020 as well. And then it was another year before the fourth installation came out. Mm. Well, first of all, congratulations on all of your success. I do have a question that popped into my mind as you were speaking. Has there ever been a time where someone, perhaps someone more senior than you, criticizes you for having so much going on? I mean, having your book series and also running your own lab. And the reason why I'm asking this question is because as a graduate student, I started participating in the world of spoken word. And though I did this on the side, I kept it a secret for a really long time because I recognized how much contempt there was in academia for having some of these outside interests. Has that been the case for you as well? I would say that largely no, not at all. I think that that is in part because I did it a little bit secretly until it was already done. And then once it was done and people saw that it was 
you know, getting some success, I think there's nothing to be said, you know, (laughs) right? Like, what are you going to say? I'm out here selling books. (laughs) Like I said, I was going to, um, I think when I was a postdoc, I was more nervous because it's true there. Mm -hmm. I would say the more junior you are in your career, I think that those concerns, even coming like from mentors or whatever, could potentially be more valid only because Mm -hmm. as I mentioned, grad school is like this, such a transformative time and you're already just taking on so much and it's not even just about time it's about kind of where you are mentally and I found personally that I as a grad student wasn't in the mental space you know I was as a postdoc and I had I was a little bit more scientifically mature so I could move my research forward while also moving this other side project forward and not having the two interfere with each other. Timing is so important. And I think I pursued this at the right time. Mm -hmm. That being said, I definitely did it not in secret, but I wasn't talking about my journey as I was on it. I started talking Mm -hmm. about it once the journey kind of became clear that it was going somewhere, you know, Um, once I already had like contracts and and started, you know, publishing the books. Um, I'm Mm -hmm. sure that if the books flopped, then people would be like, well, you probably shouldn't have taken on so much. But what can you say when that's not happening? You know, I will say that it's challenging. And I encourage everybody, including yourself, to take care because I got to a point a little bit earlier in the year where I was really breaking down. You know, starting a new lab is not trivial. It's like starting a new business. It's hard. And there's no way to not make it hard or stressful. It just is. And I was taking on a lot. I was having trouble saying no. And so, you know, it definitely became a little bit much. But then I just pulled back on some things, you know what I mean, and took some things off of my plate. But I absolutely love writing these books. Every time, you know, I realize like, oh, it's time to start a new draft. I get excited. I get a little bit nervous and anxious (laughs) because I'm like, oh, gosh, is this going to be good? Am I going to be able to do this again for the sixth or seventh time? (laughs) You know, but but I, I love it once I start writing. I love getting lost in that world. And it's a little bit of an escape, you know. And so, again, kind of circling back to your question. No, I I actually get a lot of encouragement. um, And I think that's because they ended up being successful. And so if you find yourself not necessarily getting that encouragement, don't worry about it. You know, just do what you have to do as long as you're getting benefit. And I don't mean benefit necessarily like monetarily or anything Mm -hmm. like that. But if you're feeling If you're getting emotional benefit or, you know, creative release benefit, whatever it is (laughs) that you're getting that's positive, then, you know, keep going, I would say. Mm -hmm. I was listening to a recent interview that you did with NPR and you said something that really, you know, struck me and struck me in my heart. You said that the series is a love letter to all the kids who didn't necessarily see themselves in science roles when they were growing up. And so that kind of speaks to the the power of self-imagery and being able to see yourself in these really amazing roles. Was there a moment where you realized how much power there was in representation? I don't know if there was a moment where, I mean, yes, there was. 
There was mm-hmm. definitely a moment. But in, interestingly enough, it wasn't just tied to these books. I think writing the books helped me realize it, but it wasn't writing the books that made me realize it, if that makes sense. So what made me realize how important representation was was by the time I finally, so right now, right, I'm a, I, I crawled my way up the academic ladder. I'm a tenure track assistant professor. You know, this is what I really always wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And for the longest time, I doubted that I could. And the reason I want to highlight this is that both of my parents were professors. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like I, I come from an academic background. Yes, they yeah. were first generation. Yes, they came from socioeconomically uh, disadvantaged backgrounds, but I didn't. I, you know, grew up in, in faculty meetings. My mom was a department chair, as was my dad. I, I knew the academic world, you know, mm-hmm. and yet, nonetheless, I still wasn't sure if I could do this. I still wasn't mm-hmm. sure whether or not someone like me could, which is again thinking back, just kind of nuts. <laughs> I should have, mm-hmm. I should have known that I could do it. Neither of my parents were in the sciences. My mom was a sociologist. My dad, an economist. But I should have still known, and I didn't. And I think a lot of that was because I didn't see hardly anyone who looked like me doing it. You know, I literally had so few examples, and so it made me realize. How much that lack of re- representation, even from childhood, affected me. You know, like I'm, I, right now, for example, I watch a show, I won't name it, but I watch a show with my kids that I really don't like, <laughs> but they do. And so I just suck it up. And on the show, there is, you know, like if a question comes up, there's always one little boy who knows the answer. And as you can guess, he is a very nerdy white little boy. Right. And it's kind of reinforcing that stereotype of the who is a know-it-all and who is smart and who is intrinsically. And and all the questions are usually kind of like fact based, not necessarily just science, but kind of sciencey. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And the fact that it's always kind of shown to be, you know, usually little white boys that always have the answer. That message really gets to you. And in ways that are so subconscious. And so now being able to show black and brown kids having the answers or figuring out the answers and being the smart ones in the room, I think it's just so powerful. And I think that had I had that kind of representation in media growing up, I wouldn't have doubted that I could get here. You know, Mm -hmm. I I should never have doubted that I could get here. I, I had all of the tools. I basically had a red carpet, right? Like mm-hmm. how much how much more preparation does one need besides having two academic parents? <laughs> you know, and I don't say that to sound um elitist or anything. I say it to highlight the impact of lack of representation on our psyche and how mm-hmm. strong it really is. And I didn't even realize it until I got here. You know, so literally like a year ago. <laughs> it took that long. So these this imagery is so important and like i'm also um kind of involved with the ada twist scientist netflix series i'm mm-hmm. co-writing the nonfiction companion book um to that 
And just seeing my daughters, you know, watch a little black girl be a scientist on TV and have them, you know, fight because, of course, they have to fight over something (laughs) to have them fight over who's going to be the scientist, you know, and have my oldest daughter ask me, Mommy, can boys be scientists, too? You know, like all of those things are just wonderful. And they make me so emotional and I get so happy because I just didn't have that. You know, and we're talking about in the 90s. I grew up in the 90s, right? We're not talking about the 60s, you know, and and it it matters. It really, really matters. It matters so, so much. And again, I can't say this enough. I love that you've written these books and will continue to write them. And congratulations on Ada Twist as well. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely extraordinary. I realize that we've talked so much about your writing. We actually haven't spoken about your research, which is also phenomenal. Let's talk about that a little bit. What's your research like? And tell me what techniques you use, because our audience, I'm sure, would love to hear about that as well. Yeah. So I'm a neuroscientist by training. I did my undergrad in neuroscience. I did my doctorate in neuroscience. And I've always kind of had this theme of ion channels. So Mm -hmm. as an undergrad, I studied human GABA-A receptors and their modulation by uh, compounds that are mimetics of anesthetics. Um, As a grad student, I went on to study glutamate receptors and how they are modulated by auxiliary proteins using patch clep electrolytes physiology. Mm-hmm. And I fell in love with electrophysiology um, because electrophysiology is great for people who are kind of impatient scientists. <laughs> you kind of get very instant gratification or very instant frustration, depending on the day. But um, I really fell in love with, you know, this field of ion channels and electrophysiology. And I wanted to apply my knowledge of ion channel function and biophysics to more of a physiological setting. And I was really drawn to some sensation because I felt that I was studying something that was like, no pun intended, but tangible, right? Like, you know (laughs) what temperature feels like and you know what a touch sensation feels like, right? Whereas when I was studying glutamate receptors, a lot of the field was involved in like learning and memory, which is also Mm -hmm. cool and very fascinating, but somehow it was almost too abstract for me. I'm a very simple scientist. <laughs> I like <laughs> to to kind of wrap my mind around things that I can feel. And so what better place to do that than the somatosensory system? <laughs> and so I began working, as I said, with uh, Ellen Lumpkin at Columbia University, where she was studying touch. But again, I'll make a long story a little bit short. I ended up working on a side project that was actually more related to thermosensation. And we, I, I'm not sure how I got here, but I ended up <laughs> investigating voltage-gated sodium channels. That was something that I had never done and Ellen hadn't done, but, you know, I'm, I'm not really too scared of a challenge. And so I kind of immersed <laughs> myself in this world of a, a new ion channel family and began studying how uh, voltage-gated sodium channels can regulate the excitability and action potential firing of different populations of somatosensory neurons and with a focus on um, cold sensing neurons. And so in my lab now, we basically use that same approach and combine it with, uh, so we use conditional knockout animals, transgenic reporter lines. Lines, uh, patch clamp electrophysiology, mouse behavior, immunohistochemistry, RNA scope, kind of a very combinatorial um, approach to tackle our questions from, from various angles. And we're just 
basically interested in how our peripheral nervous system transmits thermal signals in both health and disease. We know sensory neurons can transduce a lot of stimuli. Mm -hmm. The Nobel Prize, right, recently went to the identification of such transduction channels, like our trip channels and our piezo channels. Mm -hmm. But I was more interested in how those signals were then sent. Right. What were the transmission machinery? What were the voltage gated ion channels that were sending those signals? How might modulatory receptors modulate the transmission of those signals? And in disease states, how are those signals aberrantly sent? Are the same pathways hijacked or are new pathways activated? And so these are some of the questions that we're asking the lab. And again, now we have a focus on voltage-gated sodium channels, but knowing me, I'm sure I'll jump to a new channel <laughs> in no time. <laughs> I've already made my way through GABA and glutamate, <laughs> so maybe who knows which one will be next. Okay, and specifically disease-wise, are there certain diseases you're interested in? Are you using specific disease models? I, I assume you're using mouse models, correct? So we're largely right now interested in pain and different forms of pain. So there's neuropathic pain, which is results from damage to the nervous system. And we specifically use a chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy model. There are several chemotherapy drugs. Uh, most of them actually will eventually result in neuropathic pain and peripheral neuropathy um, and a huge area of investigation is trying to solve that because it presents a problem because the pain becomes so bad that patients no longer want to take the drugs that are trying to save their lives. Mm -hmm. And so we're very much interested in chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy, but as well as other um, various pain models like chronic constriction injury, uh, for example, is something that we're also um, establishing in the lab at the moment. And I'm sure we'll expand to others as time goes on. Something that I would love to do in the long term, um, it's a little it's a little bit more challenging, I think, to do it well, is investigate sickle cell pain. So I'm sure our, our listeners are familiar with sickle cell. It's a disease where your blood, your your red blood cells don't um, are misshapen mm -hmm. and causes a plethora of problems. But one of them that I think is often not discussed as much is the pain, pain mm -hmm. crises that come um, with sickle cell disease. And interestingly enough, often these pain crises can be brought upon by cold temperatures. And so I'm very curious as to the intersection of cold and pain signaling in the context of sickle cell disease. And, you know, being a black woman, studying, you know, a disease that primarily affects black and brown people, mm -hmm. that would feel very rewarding for me. So that's definitely something that I have my eye on in the horizon. But for now, I'm just kind of working on getting more, slightly more straightforward um, questions established and questions and techniques established in the lab. Mm -hmm, which makes a lot of sense. I can't wait to see what comes out of your lab. I do like ending our episodes with words of wisdom. You said earlier in the episode that you've made your way up this academic ladder. So there's so many lessons that you've learned along the way. And I can't ask you for all of them, even though I'd love to. But if you could just say one thing, one phrase, one sentence to the 20-year-old version of you, who I assume was, you know, probably finishing undergrad or in the middle of undergrad, what would you say to her? 
Oh, that's a good one. You know, I think the thing that I would most want young me to know mm-hmm. is don't take silence or no for an answer if it's really standing in the way of what you want to achieve. Mm-hmm. No one can stop you. And oh gosh, this sounds so cliche, so pardon me. <laughs> but it's true. It's true. When you When you set your eye on something, mm-hmm. it's just about getting there. And maybe getting there is not linear. Maybe it's not fast. But there is a path and you just have to figure out the path. And that pretty much goes for anything in life. If you see something, you just have to figure out how to get there. It may be hard (laughs) and it may be long, but if you really want to get there, you can. You just have to figure out how the system works. Okay, that's a beautiful end to this episode. Again, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. Be sure to pick up all of the Magnificent Makers series. Go out and get it. Get it for those that you love. Get it for yourself, even if you're a little bit older. They're glorious books. And be sure to be on the lookout for all the books that come out in the future from Dr. Theanne Griffith. And watch Ada Twist Scientist on Netflix. (laughs) Thank you so much, Dr. Griffith. (laughs) Thank you so very much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you.